You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Peter Kazarinov, who is running a set of Jupyter Notebooks in the cloud through Jupyter Hub. Today's episode is a little bit different than the others, because instead of talking about a specific app that Peter's built and deployed, we're going to talk about how Peter deployed a very popular Python-based open source tool. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. Thanks a lot for having me on, letting me talk about JupyterHub in my store. Yeah, no problem. So do you want to start things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about JupyterHub, such as what it is and how you're using it? Sure. So my name's Peter Kazarnoff. I teach engineering at Portland Community College in beautiful Portland, Oregon. I mostly teach mechanical engineering classes, but I also teach engineering programming and our ENGR 101 Intro to Engineering course, where we have three different labs uh, that we use engineering programming. So uh, Jupyter Hub deploys Jupyter Notebooks in the cloud. So let's step back a little bit and just first talk about what is Jupyter. So Jupyter is an amalgamation of uh, Julia, Python, and R. And it's a way to write and run computer code in a web browser. Many Jupyter Notebooks run Python code, but you can also run other languages in Jupyter Notebooks like Julia and R. So these Jupyter Notebooks, they run in a web browser on your computer, and typically the way that that works locally is that you've got a little Python interpreter that's called a kernel, which is uh, sending commands to your web browser and then receiving the input from the web browser. Uh, but JupyterHub, uh, that works differently. The Python kernel is instead running on a server, and then individual users are using their web browser in order to access that Python kernel. Oh, nice. So I guess from your student's point of view, then, if they want to get up and running, they don't have to install anything. They just kind of just access it all through a browser. Yeah, so as long as my students have the link, uh, they can just plug that into a browser, and then they can uh, be off and running Python code without any installation. And to them, it looks just like running Jupyter Notebooks natively on their machine. And a big advantage of this is that students can use Chromebooks, or they can use tablets, and they can even use phones to write and run Python code, and using those types of devices uh, to write and run Python code is typically a lot more difficult. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. As someone who does teaching as well, it's like such a difficult problem to get people up and running if they're, you know, a combination of Windows and Mac and Linux and Chromebooks, and some people don't even have like, yeah, just a smartphone. So has this been, I guess, very well received by your students or... Yeah, so so far it's been incredibly well received. Uh, before the quarter starts, I email out the link to students so they can get started and take a look at the programming environment before the course even starts. And I can see through the admin dash panel how many students log in and when was the last time that they logged in. And that before the quarter starts time, uh, I see a whole lot of uh, student use. And then throughout the quarter, as students uh, slowly get Python installed on their own machine, 
machine. Uh, typically, some of the use tapers off, but uh, every quarter there have been a couple of students who just use uh, Jupyter Hub and just use those Jupyter notebooks online uh, throughout the entire course. Cool. So you've set up your curriculum then where they can complete the whole course just using that exclusively? Yeah, set it up so they can complete the whole course and also set it up so that um, the GitHub repo that contains the course materials, those are the notes and the labs for the course. If you click on a special link, that also gets automatically pulled into their JupyterHub server. And so all of the material that they need for the class, that's also available to them uh, when they log in. Okay. Now, speaking of students, roughly how many students do you have connecting to this Jupyter Hub? So my classes consist of 24 students, and that's because that's how many seats we have in our computer lab. So on um, any given day, there may only be a couple students logged in at a time, but then during class time, especially right when class starts, uh, we usually have around 25 people logged into Jupyter Hub, the 24 students, and then me in the start in the front of the class, and then after the class ends, a lot of uh, the students log off, and then there'll only be a couple of students uh, using it at a time. Okay. So when it comes to JupyterHub itself, did you do any evaluation on maybe alternative technologies that would do this similar or same job? That's a really good question. So I looked at a couple of other online platforms for writing and running Python code. Uh, so those include Replit, uh, where you can write and run Python code in the cloud. That also uh, includes Azure Notebooks. There's a Microsoft Azure solution where you can run uh, notebooks in the cloud. Um, and also there's this uh, project Binder, and uh, using uh, my Binder, you can uh, run any GitHub repo of Jupyter Notebooks up in the cloud. But there were problems with all of these solutions. So for Binder, the problem is, is that you can't save anything. Any of the work that you do goes away when you shut down your web browser. With uh, Microsoft's solution, the problem was you needed Microsoft uh, usernames and passwords. And with Replit, uh, the problem was uh, you have to write and run regular Python files, not Jupyter Notebooks. And uh, getting the course materials into their platform was a lot more difficult. Okay. Now, you mentioned needing Microsoft username and passwords. Does JupyterHub have its own way to like manage uh, user authentication? Yeah, that's a really good question. So JupyterHub has many different ways you can do user authentication. You could use GitHub usernames and passwords. You can use Google usernames and passwords. You can use Microsoft usernames and passwords. And if uh, that authentication system follows the OAuth 2 standard, uh, it can be integrated into JupyterHub. Our college uses um, Google services, so our college accesses email through Gmail, and our college accesses calendars uh, through Google Calendar. So I used uh, the OAuth 2 package uh, to integrate the students' uh, college usernames and passwords so they could log on to JupyterHub that way. And uh, I also designed a custom login page so that the login page looked like our college email login page and not something that looked uh, completely different. 
Oh, wow. Nice. So this custom login service, then, is this a totally separate app from the Jupyter Hub? You need to uh, install a separate Python package if you want to use that type of login. Built into Jupyter Hub is regular PAM login, which is just regular Linux login, regular Linux usernames and passwords. So you could create local users on your Linux virtual machine, give them passwords, and then email out your users those Linux users names and passwords, and that is built into JupyterHub. But to use something like uh, Google usernames and passwords or GitHub usernames and passwords, you've got to install another Python package. Okay. So how many uh, semesters have you been using this for? So I've been using this since the summer of 2018. And usually I run these instances for about 12 quarters at a time. So I like to get it started before uh, the quarter starts, like during a break. And I'll leave it open up through the end of finals. Um, but then after finals end, I shut down the virtual machine, I shut down Jupyter Hub, and I don't keep any of the user data, and then I start up a new instance when the next quarter starts. Okay. Yeah, I guess now, I mean, coronavirus, I don't want to get into it too much on the podcast, but now is a good time to be able to do remote work, I suppose. Yeah, now is a great time to be running Jupyter Hub because my students are going to need to uh, be able to run their Python code just from their home computers. They're not going to be able to come into our computer lab and use our local installation of Python. And it's also really nice that all of the course materials can get pulled into Jupyter Hub so they don't have to uh, dig through our uh, learning management system to figure out the notes and the labs for the quarter. Right. Yeah, having that all bundled up sounds like a good thing. Now, JupyterHub itself is open source on GitHub. I didn't go, you know, over that too much before the show, but do you even need to know much about the source code of JupyterHub itself? Because at the end of the day, like you're deploying this onto a server. Do you know like maybe like the architecture of how the application is set up? So I know a little bit about how Jupyter Hub is set up and a little bit about how Jupyter Notebooks run. But if you wanted to deploy this yourself, uh, you really don't have to understand any of those internals. The difficulty is really the deployment difficulty, uh, not running uh, the app difficulty. Uh, there's a great team at Project Jupyter that manages Jupyter Hub and manages the source code. And then there's a bigger umbrella organization called NumFocus, which is the nonprofit that includes other Python projects like NumPy and Pandas and Matplotlib. Uh, that oversees Project Jupyter. So I don't have my hand in any of the source code of Jupyter Hub. The difficulty for me uh, was the deployment step, which is why I wanted to come and tell my story. Yeah, this is why I think it was cool to have you on because, you know, this is a situation where you didn't build the app itself, but I mean, it's still like a multi-service or, you know, there's a couple of things going on to deploy a Python application. So you know, the goal of wanting to deploy a Python app is still there. It just so happens you didn't write it. Yeah, and I expect that there are a lot of users that are using somebody else's pre-built app, and what they need to do is slightly customize it and deploy it. And those are basically the two steps that I use to get JupyterHub running for my students. Right, yeah. One, one of them I can think of off the top of my head is like GitLab. You know, that's like a pretty large Rails application, not a Python app, but yeah, you can self-host it, and it's quite a bit of interesting things that you need to handle. 
Right. And those same sorts of reasons why you might want to run your own local GitLab because you don't want to have, say, your company's source code publicly available on the internet. That's another good reason to use JupyterHub. Maybe you've got private user data, something like healthcare data uh, that you don't want to be able to share out with the public internet, but you want to have all your users uh, at your company have access to it. And JupyterHub is a great way to be able to share data among multiple users and share code among multiple users, but not have it out publicly over the internet. Right. So maybe you can talk a little bit about like, what was your strategy to first get this thing deployed? Did you just like crawl through their documentation or? So that's a great question. So first I had this like aha moment. I was thinking Jupyter Notebooks run in web browsers and Jupyter Notebook run Python code. So wouldn't it be crazy neat if I could just have this running on a cloud server? So at very first I started trying to code things myself. And then uh, browsing through the internet, I realized that there was already a package created, JupyterHub, that does this. So I started off by looking through all of the documentation and trying to slowly go through step by step uh, to get my own deployment uh, created. Uh, the JupyterHub documentation has this little deployment story called uh, My Littlest Jupyter Hub, and that's one of the simplest ways to deploy it. And they've also got a, a tutorial about how to deploy it using Kubernetes. And my deployment is kind of halfway in between those two levels of complication. Okay. We'll get there in one sec, but maybe we can talk just a little bit about like what is necessary to run Jupyter Hub in terms of like what services does it use? Does it use a relational database? Does it use Docker? Things like that? That's a good question. So at the base level, really only a couple things. So you need a regular Linux operating system. You need some sort of authentication, either directly through Linux or through some external service. Then you need Python installed. And then there needs to be some sort of database uh, that holds the user session information. And in my instance, I just use the built-in SQLite database with 24 students. That's not a huge amount of data. Right. Okay. So these are all things that you're on the hook for having to set up before you can run JupyterHub. Uh, correct. Yeah, you need to set up your own server. You need to do uh, your own Python installation. And then you need to install JupyterHub and get all of that set up and customized. Okay. So I guess then it doesn't have like an easy way just to like build a Docker image and run that and be like on your way, kind of? Not that I know of. Uh, I didn't deploy it using Docker. I think that that is certainly possible, but uh, not to my knowledge, you can just uh, like click one button on DigitalOcean and get it installed. Yeah, that would be really nice if there was a one-click installer. <laughs> yeah, that would be totally <laughs> neat. I expect that they don't have quite as many users for that as they do maybe for uh, Django or like a regular LAMP stack or something like that. Yeah, that brings up an interesting thing, though. I've never even thought about this before. I wonder what their DigitalOcean's workflow is like to get a new one click installer like on the system like is it community driven or like an employee driven i don't know that's a good question i don't know yeah so we, you mentioned DigitalOcean. then is that where all of this is hosted yeah i hosted the very first instance on DigitalOcean because i had a free credit 
and uh, my free credit allowed me to run for two months without paying any server cost. And then uh, the next quarter that I ran it, I used DigitalOcean virtual machines again. And there was a little trick to that. So when I first ran it and I had the credit, I was able to pay for a larger server for a $40 a month server. And all of the students could log in all at the same time. And Jupyter ran uh, flawlessly. But the next quarter, when I had to pay for it, I was using $5 a month month servers. And the very first day of class, all of the students logged in at the same time. And JupyterHub didn't go down, but it was very, very unresponsive. And the individual student kernels would die, and none of the Python code would run. And I realized very quickly, oh, that previous quarter, I had a much bigger server running, so that was able to carry the load. But that next quarter, that $5 a month server didn't cut it when all 25 users were trying to uh, run Python code at the same time. Oh yeah, that makes a big difference. I don't know the stats in front of me. Maybe you have them. Like that $40 a month server has something what, like four CPU cores, eight gigs of RAM maybe? Yeah, I think it was something like uh, eight cores and maybe uh, 16 gigs of RAM for the more expensive server and like uh, one core and a couple gigs of RAM for the uh, really cheap server. Yeah, that makes a huge difference. Now it makes me wonder, maybe you need to negotiate a little more budget to get uh, the $40 a month server. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, and it's sort of an interesting thing in deployment, too, because if you were thinking of like a Flask app or a Django app and 25 people were trying to access that app at the same time, that's not a huge load and that wouldn't be a huge problem. But since each one of these users is running their own Python kernel and each one of those Python kernels are running sort of arbitrary amounts of code, potentially with big data sets or producing plots, that's a lot more resource intensive than just a typical web app. Yeah, for sure. Now, speaking of maybe comparable, you know, Flask or Django applications, do you happen to know, or are you even responsible for having to know what app server that JupyterHub uses? Like, is it G-Unicorn or something else? So there's a Nginx reverse proxy in front uh, that I put in place. And then uh, I believe that it's uh, a Python package called Tornado that does the asynchronous communication between the running Jupyter notebooks on clients and then uh, the kernels which are running on the server. Okay. So yeah, even though it's, you know, not something you wrote, it's still a very common tools that you're using to deploy this. Like Nginx is very commonly used in a lot of apps. So were you, we were able to find uh, tutorials or whatever, you know, something that you can follow to get that up and running without too much pain? So uh, the Nginx configuration was actually my biggest pain point because Nginx configuration files aren't Python files. And my background uh, was with teaching Python, but not teaching Nginx deployment. And it was really tricky for me initially to be able to set up the server block and then do the symlink to the active sites. And uh, that part of the deployment took me probably the longest out of everything. Right, the good old sites-enabled symlink. <laughs> right, right. And then on top of all of that, I mean, I, I imagine, well, did you set up like Let's Encrypt or some other SSL certificate way? Initially, I didn't. And 
I logged in over regular HTTP, and then my web browser was like, site unsafe, you know, don't proceed. And I thought, if students see this, there's no way that they're going to log on and uh, run their Python code using this service. So I used Let's Encrypt to generate an SSL certificate, and then uh, that allowed me to use um, HTTPS, and then the students no longer got that warning. Right. Do you remember what tool you used to set that up? Was it CertBot? Yeah, I used CertBot uh, to set up the SSL cert. Huh. Isn't that funny how that works, though? It's like you become a, a professor at a community college, and suddenly you're teaching this course, and now you're like, you know, Mr. DevOps over here, <laughs> like configuring Nginx. Right. I mean, it kind of highlights that sometimes the deployment is much more difficult than writing the app itself. And there were many more technologies than I initially thought uh, that we're going to go into the deployment, including using things like CertBot, using Linux, using Nginx, how to SSH, SSH keys. Uh, there are a whole lot of technologies that go into the deployment that I wasn't familiar with when I started. Yeah. So like I have this Flask course out and we focus very, very hard on building the Flask application, not the deploying aspect. And, you know, every once in a while, a student will message me and they're like, hey, you know, can you just add a quick video on maybe deploying this application? And then it's like, well, you know, you can't just make that 20 minute video because like you say, there's like every rabbit hole you go down, it works into like 10 other ones. So when it came to installing all of this, what distro of Linux did you choose for your server? So I chose Ubuntu 18.04 and I've used that distribution uh, for each time that I deployed Jupyter Hub. And uh, the first time I ran the deployment, I just SSH'd into the server and manually typed individual commands into my little putty window in order to get the deployment running. Okay. Ah, putty. Good old putty. Way before WSL was around, that was the way to SSH into stuff? Yeah, and we're on uh, Windows at my college, and we're not able to install Windows Subsystem for Linux on any of the computers that the faculty use. So it had to be putty and using PuttyGen to make uh, the SSH keys. Interesting. Was that just like a IT department constraint that they put in? Yep. Okay, so I guess in a couple of months, Ubuntu 20.04 is going to come out. Does that kind of align with the next semester you would start would be, I guess, a couple months after that in September, right? Yeah, probably I'll try the next long-term release in the fall of 2020, so the next fall that we run the course. But uh, this spring and this summer, I think I'm going to keep with the same version of Linux and keep with the same version of Python. Right. So which version of Python are you using, by the way? So right now we're running Python 3.7. Okay. Yeah, I think 3.8, like only just very, very recently came out. Yeah, and uh, little version problems can crop up uh, because maybe uh, your version of Jupyter Hub doesn't necessarily support all of the new features in Python 3.8. Uh, so I make sure to pin the version of both Jupyter Hub, Jupyter Notebooks, as well as uh, Python itself in between the deployments. Right. And when it comes to Python itself, though, can you kind of just lean on Jupyter Hub's documentation for which Python version to pick? Or do they not even recommend which one? Yeah, I just leaned on the documentation for whichever was the most recent supported version of Python. Right. 
So it, it does sound like every couple of months or, you know, every quarter, semester, et cetera, you know, you're spinning up a brand new DigitalOcean server, I guess, with all of the components you need to run it, right? Starting from scratch? Yeah. Each quarter, I've been spinning up usually two different virtual machines, one for our engineering programming class and one for our in intro to engineering class. Have you gone down one of those deeper rabbit holes and looking for ways to maybe automate setting up those servers? So that's a great question. The first time I SSH'd into the server and manually typed in every single command, uh, and then the second time I created just a couple uh, little bash scripts that would do some of that. And now most recently what I've been trying to do is every time I'm typing something into my putty terminal or I'm running one of these bash scripts, I'm trying to put those into Ansible playbooks. And hopefully this next deployment, then I'll be able to use those Ansible playbooks and this will take a lot less work. Yeah. That's very interesting to hear because the path you followed is like the exact path I followed as well. It's like, you know, you do it once or twice manually and they're like, wait, I can maybe document this stuff. So I don't need to go to like 40 different tutorials. And then it's like, well, the docs are there. Why not just make a script of it? And then it's like, once you get to the script part, you're like, well, maybe there's some other tools to handle that instead of creating some crazy script by hand. And then, yeah, you arrived at Ansible at some point. And I've tried to build documentation of each one of the steps that I go through, but it's amazing when the new quarter starts and I look at the documentation that I made, it's always slightly incomplete for some reason. Documentation is never quite good enough. Yeah, it very easily drifts out of sync. Now, with that Ansible setup, have you ran that in the previous install or is that going to be for next quarter? So I sort of... Um, did one class with the regular manual technique and then uh, did the other class partly with the Ansible playbooks. And there's some kink that I still need to work out, uh, like hiding secret keys within Ansible and um, storing uh, things which can't be publicly revealed that I need to work on a little bit more before uh, I'm committing to making that stuff live. Right. But those students themselves, they're never really SSHing directly into your server, right? As far as I know, um, they are not SSHing into the server. Uh, JupyterHub does allow you to bring up a terminal in your web browser and run regular commands, but it depends on how you set up JupyterHub, what types of uh, security permissions individual users have, what parts of the server they're allowed to touch. Right. Do you have that on like the maximum lockdown or... As much as I know and can, I have that on the maximum lockdown. The way that students uh, store their work, store their Jupyter notebooks, is directly on their on the JupyterHub server in their own home directory. Most of my students are not picking up the terminal and running Linux commands, uh, but they could. And this is kind of different than a regular content management system, I think, that uh, the flat files are just being stored on the server, and I can then uh, log on to the server and see all of uh, the student work. 
right? Is that part of your workflow then? You just log in directly and check it out? Yeah, I can log in directly and see all the student work. I can also uh, potentially download uh, any student work. And um, I do log in and see usage, uh, how many people have logged on, how long were they logged on for, when did they log in last time. Right. Have you found yourself maybe writing some scripts just to kind of get to that information a little bit faster or no? Not yet. Um, really, the, the automation that I want to create is the automation to increase the server size. So right now, when class starts, what I've been doing is quickly shutting down the server, making sure that there aren't any users on it, increasing the server size, and then restarting it. And then during class, students are running on that bigger, more expensive server. And then after class, shutting down the expensive server, decreasing the size, and restarting it. And it would be really nice to have an automation that did this uh, just based on time and that ran automatically. Right. Is that something you're going to wire up with Ansible then? Yeah, something that I'd like to be able to wire up with Ansible and then maybe a cron job uh, running on a local Linux machine. Right. Yeah, that's one really cool thing about DigitalOcean. They make it very easy to go from, you know, a lower machine to a higher machine. It's like you literally turn the power off, wait 30 seconds, you know, pick your thing and you're done. Right, right. But I, I totally agree. Like, you know, you don't want to be doing that every day. You know, of course, you try to automate that. And there are ways to set up JupyterHub using Kubernetes so that that kind of scaling happens automatically. But for my use case of 24 students at a time, I felt like Kubernetes was overkill. And I already had to learn all of these new technologies and losing uh, learning Kubernetes on top of it just seemed daunting at the time. Yeah, definitely. So at your uh, community college, is there other teachers or professors who are using this setup as well or no? Right now, there is another instructor that teaches our engineering programming class, and she's using it. And right now, for the coming quarter, there are a couple of intro to engineering instructors uh, that are also planning on using it. Nice. Yeah, it's kind of cool. It's like, well, now you have all this stuff semi-automated with Ansible. It's like you can kind of just throw them a zip file, you know, extract this, run this, and they can get up and running without having to go through all the pain you did for the last couple of years. <laughs> well, I haven't set that up yet with other instructors. I've said, oh, I'll set up the Jupyter Hub server. And as long as you have our college username and password, uh, you'll be able to log into it and your students will be able to log into it. Um, I'm not quite at the point yet where I can just point another faculty member to a GitHub repo and say, here it is. Uh, go run off on the deployment yourself. So speaking of deployment, is there any type of workflow that you do to update things after it's been up and running? Like typically, if you know, if this were your application, you'd be deploying stuff on a regular basis. Is that something you do or don't do? So there are a couple updates uh, that I do make. Uh, when I shut down uh, the server to increase the size, I usually do a quick like sudo apt-get update to update any of the packages. And then the other thing that usually happens is the SSL certificate needs to be renewed. So that's another thing that I need to update. 
uh, one of the packages that I use is called git puller, and that's the Python package that allows students to get the class notes and labs out of an external GitHub repo and put them onto the Jupyter Hub server in their home directory. And if I make updates to the external GitHub repo with the notes and the labs, those changes automatically get pulled in when the users uh, click on the link. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's very handy because I didn't even think about that problem. It's like, what do you do when you want to push an update to 24 people? Right. And the package is pretty neat. Uh, one problem is that if the students modify the files themselves, then when you try to do the update, it will keep uh, the student's modified version and not uh, my modified version. But I think that there are a bunch of uh, little configuration commands that you can do to change that behavior. Right. Now, this isn't so much related to the tech, but are a lot of other instructors using GitHub for their college-level courses as well? Just from a curiosity standpoint. Yeah, not that I know of. Um, the instructors which teach programming, I think, all usually have GitHub accounts, but uh, generally for private projects. And since our college has an official learning management system, like our version of D2L, our version of Blackboard, our version of Canvas. Uh, that's where most of the instructors store their course materials. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious. That's cool, though, to see that uh, you're branching out using GitHub. And I've had a couple of instructors from across the country reach out to me because they found my GitHub repo and asked if they could use any of my course materials. So if any listeners uh, find those course materials, please, you're welcome to use them, modify them, use parts of them. Uh, please use them freely. Awesome. Yeah, I'll make sure to link any of that in the show notes below. I guess the next question would be here, are you using any external tools like for sending out emails or error reporting, or does that stuff just come out of the box with JupyterHub? So I believe that JupyterHub has a Prometheus client, and so if you hook up Prometheus, then you can get more rich user logs and data, but I haven't used any of that functionality. I've just used uh, the built-in functionality where it saves it to a log file on the server and then use the admin dashboard to see who's logged in and how often they've been logged in. Right. Is that process pretty straightforward to get the information that you like? Like you're not spending a ton of time dealing with that? In order to get to the admin dashboard, it's super easy. Uh, you just click the admin button and only the instructor that sets up the JupyterHub server will see that button. Uh, getting uh, Prometheus running, I think, is more complicated, but I haven't done it yet. Right. So do you actually go in there then on a regular basis and, I guess, check over all the work they've submit? Good question. So I would say I more often log in uh, to see how often students use JupyterHub and to see the last time that they used it. I'm still using our college learning management system for students to upload uh, their work, and then I grade within the student uh, management system. There is another Python package called nbgrader, and you can integrate that into JupyterHub so that you can have automated graded assignments, but I haven't incorporated that functionality yet. Right. Oh, yeah, that makes sense, too, because you said a lot of folks like midway through, they jump over and install Python on their own machine. So now they're not using JupyterHub. So 
I guess when it comes to things like planning for disasters, does JupyterHub give you a way to deal with database backups or user file backups? Not that I know of natively. Because I know my users really well, they're the 24 students in my class, I'm not as worried about uh, making sure that everything is backed up. I do occasionally open up a SCP terminal and copy everything uh, during the course of the quarter just in case something happens. But like the little SQLite database that's running, I'm not so worried about that getting lost. And it's probably not the best way to do error reporting, having your users tell you that something isn't working. Uh, but that's kind of currently the way that it's set up is when students have trouble, they definitely tell me. Right. Now, when it comes to things maybe not working, I know DigitalOcean has ways to set up alarms and it has its own monitoring setup for disk space and CPU. Do you have any of that hooked up or no? I haven't used any of that functionality yet. And the main functionality is just increasing the server size and then decreasing the server size. Yep. So then I guess like, do you go even further than just DO's alarms? Like, do you use anything to check to make sure that the Jupyter site is up and running? Because I imagine it's on like a publicly accessible site, right? Yeah, it's publicly accessible using just a regular web address, but I haven't um, put into DigitalOcean all of those automatic alerts. The only alert that I get is the billing alert if I go over a certain number of dollars per month. But talking with you about it, I think probably setting up another alert that uh, the server's gone down or that uh, the load has gotten above a certain level is a really good idea. Right. Although I guess, yeah, with the load one, are they mostly working on this out of the classroom or inside? Both. It's just the difference between how many users are logged in at the same time. Outside of class, it's usually a couple of users that are logged in on the same time. But during class, it's possible that all 24 of the students in the class are logged in at the same time. Yeah, wide range of different traffic. So on that note, uh, what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from deploying this app? So I guess a great lesson is that deployment is difficult. I didn't realize that just knowing Python wasn't quite enough to deploy a Python app and that there were many different technologies that I had to learn to do the first deployment. But like writing code, deployment allows many, many mistakes to be made. I'm not holding bank data or holding healthcare data in my JupyterHub instance. So if something goes wrong with the deployment, uh, nobody's going to get hurt. Nobody loses money or loses their job. So just like with coding, it's okay to make mistakes in deployment. Right. Yeah. They don't lose their job, but they just lose their degree. Nothing serious. <laughs> I really hope that doesn't happen. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, speaking of mistakes, though, I mean, have you made some mistakes throughout deploying this that you've learned from? And like, how, how did you fix them? I've learned many, many mistakes. So uh, first big mistake uh, was about SSH keys, where uh, to store them. Uh, so I've made mistakes about leaving like secrets up in GitHub repos when I definitely should have, and then quickly erasing everything and trying to get all of that off of uh, any local machines and any online uh, repositories. 
I've made a lot of mistakes with Nginx configurations and thinking that everything was working fine and then going to the web address and then all of a sudden it's not working anymore. Uh, I've also made mistakes with versioning that I bumped up a version of Python or a version of a package that wasn't compatible with a version of another package running. And most of the functionality of JupyterHub would work, but then this weird little edge case uh, wouldn't work. And then uh, I've also made a huge number of mistakes with just HTML, CSS formatting to build that custom uh, login page that looks like our college login page. I'm not a web designer by training and uh, getting all the HTML and CSS to load correctly and to look right. Uh, that took a whole lot of work. Right. For something like that, I guess you were just approaching that from ground zero, right? Like no prior experience with that? I'd done a teeny bit of uh, website creation and I write a blog. So I'm sort of familiar with kind of like the fundamentals of HTML. Um, but when it comes down to trying to replicate a college site that contains a lot of embedded JavaScript in it for some of the parts of the page to be rendered, uh, getting to replicate that was pretty tricky. Yeah, for sure. But I, I think you've done an amazing job, right? It's like you set up all of this stuff on your own, just, you know, grudging through it as the problems come up, you solve them. And at the end of the day, you have a solution that works for all of your students. Yeah, it's been working pretty well so far. The improvements that I want to make are those automation improvements, just hopefully cut down on the amount of time that it takes me to do the deployment and know that the deployment is going to be the same quarter. Uh, Order unless we upgrade to a new version of X or upgrade to a new version of Python. Right. Well, it sounds like you're on the right track for that with the Ansible setup, right? At some point, you'll be able to run a playbook or two, sit back and relax, and 10 minutes later, it's all up. <laughs> That's the dream. In theory. <laughs> so, Peter, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thanks so much, Nick. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought it was, it was awesome to see the perspective of how do you deploy an app that you don't have? I'm happy about this one. Uh, so before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, things like that? So if people want to follow me on GitHub, my GitHub username is Professor Kazarnov. I'm also on Twitter at P. Kazarnov, and uh, you can follow my blog at Python for undergraduate engineers.com. And I've also uh, got an open source book called Problem Solving with Python that you can access free over the internet or buy a hard copy on Amazon. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.